0: agp.net
1: Good morning and welcome to the Light 88.7 FM Bible Live a live radio call-in with Dr. Carl Brogi. Dr. Brogi is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina, and for the next hour he's available to answer your questions providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question for Dr. Brogi, you may call 525-1859 or on your all-tell cellular phone, star 887. If you're calling outside our immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980.
2: Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogi. Study and show yourself approved of God as a workman who is not ashamed rightly dividing the word of truth. We welcome you, as always, to this hour of the Bible Line. This is an opportunity, if you're a first-time listener, to call in. If you have a question about God's Word that you're exploring and you'd like to dialogue over it, or if you have a particular challenge in your life or ministry that you would like biblical counsel on, you can call us locally. The number is uh, 843-525-1859. We also have a toll free number for our internet listeners who may be outside the immediate area, and that number is 877. Our call letters, WAGP 980. The 877 number is WAGP 980, or you can email us here directly into the studio. The email address is TBL for the Bible line at wagp.net. When you call, you can simply dictate your questions. Some elect to go on the air, some want to remain totally anonymous. So however we can take your question, we'll do our best to respond. Rick, let's go ahead and we'll get started today.
1: Indeed. And uh, I think we've got our first uh, question from a place we hadn't had in the past, Iwakuni, Japan. A listener there, Christy, has a friend who grew up Catholic and says she's lost. She said uh, that she and her husband have tried other religions, but it seems like a lot of fluff, yet the Catholic religion seems wrong to them also. Are there any resources you could offer, i.e. sermons or reading materials? She does seem open to hear the gospel.
2: Well, you know, many times what people have rejected is not Christianity, but a poor representation of it. And so she may have been to a Catholic church and found no life there. She may have been to a Protestant church and found it to be fluff, to quote, her uh, of no substance, and unfortunately, uh, many in both camps are. There's no substance because the Bible's not open, and you're getting man's opinion and ear tickling sermons. Uh, so, no, uh, you want to direct her in towards you know Christ and give her first the plan of salvation. If you go to the website at searchthescriptures dot org, all one word, searchthescriptures.org, dot org there's a message, would you like to have God as your friend? God has used it to convert literally thousands of people. And it's just a simple presentation of the gospel. It's in DVD form. You can download it for audio as well. But listen to that message, would you like to have God as your friend? And I would watch it with her on the front end of the uh, sermon. I always encourage people to stop the DVD or stop the tape and pause and actually physically write out the answers to those questions. There's two diagnostic questions I like to ask on a scale of zero to 100. Zero representing, I have no idea. A hundred representing, I have no doubt. Uh, how certain are you if you're to die in the next minute that you'd go to heaven? Are you 25, 50, 75, 100? Get them to physically write out the answer to that. Of course, just because they say they're a hundred doesn't mean it's true. Uh, 30% of lost people will probably say they're 100%. The second question is also very revealing. If you were to die and God said, why should I let you into my heaven, what would you say? Uh, Some people will say, well, I don't have a clue. You can also say, well, what do you think you'd have to do to be 100% or what are God's entrance requirements to get into heaven? Again, their theology will be revealed. The mouth speaks that which is in the heart. And then they can take that answer and put it into the mirror of the Bible to see if their key fits the door that God has, if I can use that analogy. So uh, I think that's where I would start with her. I would listen to that message with her. Would you like to have God as your friend? And maybe someone's listening to me right now who does not have that assurance. I'll be doing that very presentation live this Thursday night at Community Bible Church. We have a meeting called Meet the Pastor And uh, it's an opportunity for me to share our core values, and I start by sharing a simple presentation of the gospel. If a Christian comes, they're edified, and that most Christians in America have never led anyone to Christ. Uh, If they're not a Christian, they're going to hear the plan of salvation and how to meet Christ. So I hope that helps our email from Iwakuni, Japan. Thank you.
1: Our next listener is also emailing, but she's from Augusta, Georgia. Her name is Darina, and she says in Matthew 7, it says, do not give your pearls to swine in reference to sharing the gospel with people who trample on or mock God's word. She writes, I know that people like Madeline Marie O'Hare fall into that category. However, what does scripture say about praying for people like that to be saved apart from sharing the gospel with them? Um, the writer and... Uh, Uh, anti-theist Christopher Hitchens, near the end of his life, told his closest friends that if they heard that he had made a deathbed conversion to any religion, that they could chalk it up to the effects of his cancer treatment or the spread of cancer to his brain because no such conversion would take place. Should we continue to pray for people like him and Madeline Murray O'Hare to be saved despite their fierce determination not to be converted?
2: Well, certainly, you know, there, there comes a point where it is very obvious sometimes to individuals that there is a person who wants absolutely nothing to do with the gospel message, and that's the reference that the Lord Jesus is making. Uh, you know, the first verse of that chapter is usually quoted, Judge not lest you be judged. Uh, But the Lord, of course, uh, speaks that there is a kind of judgment that Christians are to exercise. In John 7, he tells us to judge with righteous judgment. And even some of the uh, statements that he makes in the immediate context demands some kind of judgment, some kind of evaluation on our part. What God is against, of course, is attacking uh, a person by reading motives that you can't read. Uh, Only God can read motivations of the heart. So he says, do not give what is holy to dogs and do not throw your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. Of course, if uh, you look at the kingdom parables in Matthew 13, the pearl is an equative term to the kingdom of God or or, or the gospel. And there is a time when, as Jesus said in Matthew ten fourteen, when you uh, go and share the plan of salvation with people, there will be some people, he said, that will be extremely open. He gave them the positive side and he said, listen, when they invite you into and want to feed you and take care of you, receive it as a blessing from God, there'll be people like that. But he also said there will be people who will utterly reject you. And in such cases, you uh, shake the dust off your feet and you move forward. Now, God alone sometimes knows when a person has crossed an eternal line. Our responsibility is when there's an utter disdain uh, for the things of God to withhold the gospel pearl. That doesn't mean we withhold our prayer. Uh, I'm sure there are people who prayed for Madeline Murray O'Hare for decades. Um, Her son ended up getting converted. Uh, He's a very outspoken Uh, believer, the one that she used, who I I believe was six years of age in the Supreme Court case to get prayer out of the schools, is now an outspoken Christian. And of course, he spoke against his mother's own theology and atheism, and she at some point disappeared and now is presumed dead or has been for a long, long time. By the way, if you get one of those emails that Madeline Murray O'Hare is trying to Get christian uh radio off the airwaves i the first one I saw when was when I was a student at boston college in in nineteen seventy six and they still prop- uh propped, you know could show up every now and then, don't they ricker indeed they do. And it bothers the FCC, I think, because they keep getting notices to that effect. But anyway, there there comes a point when, um, you know, you stop sharing the gospel. It doesn't necessarily mean you stop praying. You know, there is a deathbed conversion in the Bible. There's only one. And of course, it's the thief on the cross. Uh, there's one so that none of us will despair, but there's only one so that none of us will presume. Uh, we can't presume that at the last minute we'll have a moment and an opportunity to respond and receive Christ. Uh, God is the one who initiates with man. And and so what you do as a Christian is you look for people who are responding to the work of the Spirit of God in their life. And you pursue them. Uh, You take the gospel to them. Uh, You reason with them from the Scripture because they're searching and God's work is not being resisted. And so those are the kinds of people that you look for. You can spend all your time spinning your wheels on people who are uninterested when there's people all around you that are interested, who are waiting to hear a simple presentation of the gospel for the first time. So that's where I would give my focus. But again, God alone knows when a person has crossed that line. I suppose if the Apostle Paul were alive today and he was going from house to house in our country and having Christians arrested and you know, participating in even the execution of Christians as he did with Stephen, then we would say, well, you know, he's like a Madeline Murray O'Hare. He's crossed the uncrossable line. He's so far from God, he'd never be converted so you just don't know sometimes. Uh, God alone knows that. So that's a great question, thought-provoking. I appreciate it. Let's go to the next question. And 525-1859 is the local number if you'd like to call.
1: All right. Diane from Port Colburn, Ontario writes, what specifically is meant by the term blaspheme? When and why does it become the only unpardonable sin? And uh, could you give some supporting scripture?
2: Well, the term blasphemy is when you speak uh, disrespect against God, when you have a disdain for the things of God. And it can be created and expressed in a lot of different ways. Uh, the particular illustration that you are highlighting here is the one that is uh, quoted in Matthew chapter 12. It's also found in the Synoptic Gospels, Um the situation was there was brought to him a demon-possessed man who is blind and dumb. So it's really a triple miracle of sorts. He's demon-possessed, He is unable to see, and he is unable to, to speak. He's blind and dumb, and, and the Lord healed him. So that the dumb man spoke and saw, and all the multitudes were amazed and began to say, This man cannot be the son of David, can he? Um, yes, he is. But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, this man casts out demons by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. And knowing their thoughts, he said to them, any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste and any city or house divided against itself cannot stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then shall the kingdom, his kingdom stand? So he's saying, listen, your, your reasoning doesn't even make sense And if uh, if I by Beelzebul cast out demons, by whom do your sons cast them out? Consequently, they're your judges. But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Um, And so then he makes this statement. He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. There's no such thing as neutrality. Therefore, I say to you, any sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven men. So blasphemy can be forgiven. Uh, But blasphemy, he said, against the Spirit shall not be forgiven. And whoever shall speak a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But whoever shall speak against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the age to come. And so... Again, the Lord is highlighting the fact that blasphemy is a forgivable sin, but blasphemy against the Spirit is not. Blasphemy against God can be forgiven. Blasphemy against the Son can be forgiven, but blasphemy against the Spirit could not be forgiven. Why was that? Well, again, if you put it in the context, some would argue that indeed this sin cannot be committed today because Jesus Christ is not physically present to uh, do a miracle by the power of the Holy Spirit residing and working through him. And so the point is, is they had rejected the witness of God, the father. Uh, They had blasphemed what he had said concerning his son. Uh, And Jesus told parables of that, like the parable of the vine growers and so forth. They had blasphemed what the Lord Jesus said him about himself, that he was indeed Messiah. And then finally uh, now the final witness that they had to respond to God, the Holy Spirit working and residing in him, they blasphemed him. So there was no other possible witness, no other possible testimony that they could respond to. And so in that sense, they had rejected every possible avenue that God was giving them to respond to the gospel of the kingdom, the gospel of his son, and they spurned it. And so they were committing an unforgivable sin. There is a sense in which that sin can be forgiven today. I mean, uh, that that sin can be committed today. If a person repeatedly, habitually rejects the work of God the Holy Spirit in their life, and they say no to God long enough, God does give them ultimately their pleasure he says no to them. Jesus spoke of that in Luke 8, 13. Uh, Paul, the apostle, speaks of it in a wholesale way in 2 Thessalonians 2. So it can happen because the only unforgivable sin today is to reject Jesus Christ, not to believe in him. Uh, to believe in him you have life, not to believe, well, God's wrath continues to abide upon you. And if you reject the work of the Holy Spirit, who alone can open your eyes up, to the truth of the gospel, what you're really saying is you're a liar. What you're telling me, the spirit of truth that I should embrace is wrong. And so you're calling the spirit of God a liar. And that is ultimately a form of blasphemy. You do that long enough. Well, you will have committed an unforgivable sin because without Jesus Christ, there is no salvation.
1: All right. Let's go to our next live caller. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Good morning. Thank
0: you very much for taking my call.
1: Yeah,
2: thanks uh, for calling. Me. I am a
0: member at Community Bible Church, and I, I guess it's my, that's more of a statement and a question, I guess, uh, concerning tithing. Uh, my wife and I own a small construction company. We we do painting for a living, and it's it, it's almost impossible for us to tithe on a weekly basis. But reading as, as I have in Scripture where it says, give 10% of your first fruits, we just wonder if we're doing the correct thing as, as we get paid for jobs, uh, even even if it's just a partial payment. We give automatically uh, 10% of that now to the church as a tithe. Um, in the past, we have not done that. We we were I guess we were a little worried about how we were going to get work and when we would have jobs coming in, when we would have money coming in, and I, I think my wife and I both realize now we were questioning God and questioning his sovereignty and his goodness by not trusting him to provide work for us. So we have made that decision, and I'm I'm just, I guess I'm just calling to make sure that, you know, that scripturally we're all right by by giving the 10% off of our our payments as we receive them.
2: Well, you know, let's say you you make wickets for a living, and uh, you buy all your materials and make your wickets, and it Cost you you know ten thousand dollars to to make market and you know put your wickets out in the market and then you sell them at a retail price and you sell the ten thousand dollar investment you have and you make twelve thousand uh, dollars back, then your net increase uh, is two thousand dollars, and so you tithe off of the two thousand dollars that would be considered the increase. And so, yeah, it is a step of faith. Now, I realize that people's income comes in different ways and in different manners and in different flows. Some people aren't paid weekly; some are paid biweekly. Occasionally, you'll meet people who are paid once a month. Most people in America are still paid weekly, um, and so you tithe off of the increase. Uh, I was in a country in South Africa, and um, the pastor there was telling me, "Well, you know, virtually everyone in the village is employed and." So they don't unemployed so they don't they don't tithe. And I said, Well let me ask you a question. I said, if they're making no money, zero money, how are they eating? Well they grow their crops. Oh okay, so there is increase. So if they harvest ten ears of corn, God would say give one ear of corn to the work of the Lord. And so you bring one ear of corn to work. If that's how it's uh Uh, to to church, if that's how it is, uh, you know, your your increase is is coming. In fact, that's very often how it was done in the time of Malachi when he writes of it. So there was different means in which the tithe was given, sometimes literally physical produce, uh, sometimes it was coinage. But it is 10% off the increase that God gives us. That's what he asks us to believe him for. Will a man rob God? Yet you say, how are we robbing you? You've robbed me, he says, in tithes and offerings. You're cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse so that there may be food in my house. And test me now in this, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you a blessing until it overflows. So it is ultimately an act of faith. And there are certainly people who have tried to argue against the tithe, and they say, well, that was simply an Old Testament practice. I think they're wrong. Uh, For 1,900 years of church history, nobody said it was simply an Old Testament practice. That's a rather recent teaching in the course of church history. I don't think the church was wrong for 1,900 years, much less what the Old Testament saints did. In fact, tithing was practiced ever before the law was given. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob all tithed to the work of the Lord. I don't think that was by accident. Moses had not yet been born had not yet codified it in the law. Why didn't Abraham give 20% or 80% or 3% or 1% or 100%? Well, because he's the father of the faithful, and faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of God. And though the first verse of Scripture had not yet been penned, uh, Abraham was a direct conduit of revelation. God spoke directly to Abraham. He knew to give a tenth. He commences the process. His grandson, Jacob, continues it. Moses later commands it. Jesus commends it. We shouldn't cancel it. Some would argue, well, the tithe wasn't 10%, but 13% or 23%. And in my financial course on how to manage your money God's way, uh, which is uh, a course that deals with what the Bible says first about the subject of stewardship, about giving, saving, debt, and investing, we look at five major areas of of physical possessions that God puts in our hand. And then we the sixth section of that course deals with budgeting. So it is a faith issue, and God says, test me in it. Now, sometimes people say, well, I have no increase. Well, if you have no increase, then you have nothing to tithe. You start with what God gives you. You know, I, I've asked people before, if you had 10 pennies, 10, one, 10 pennies, could you give God a penny? It of course I could give God a penny. Well, how about if you had ten one dollar bills? Could you give God a one dollar bill? Yeah, I, th- I think Pastor, I could give God a one dollar bill to His work, to His storehouse, which in the New Covenant I believe is the local assembly. Um, well, what if, um, what if I had ten one hundred dollar bills? Could you give God a hundred dollar bill? Oh, Pastor, that, that that's a lot of money. I don't know if I could give him a hundred dollar bill. Listen, a tithe is a tithe is a tithe, and it's an act of faith. And we trust God. The Bible repeatedly tells us not to test God. But in this particular issue, God says, test me now on this and see if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you a blessing until it overflows. If someone wants to study that in more detail, and really, again, sometimes people think, well, tithing is the silver bullet but they're not obeying what God says about saving, about debt in other areas. And so it's very important that you get a holistic picture of what God says on finances. And we're going to repeat that financial course again. It's been a couple of years since I've done it, but I'm going to do it again. And I think it will be helpful. But it is available, and there's a loaner copy at Community Bible Church. Very often, people who need it the most can't even afford to pay for the simple costs. Uh, We don't make any money off of it, and so we have a loaner copy that they can borrow. Anyway, great question. Let's go to the next one.
1: Indeed, we do have a live caller. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Hi, Dr. Brogy.
0: Thanks for uh, taking my call. And I just um, had a question about uh, Romans chapter 9. Um, I noticed in uh, verse 25 and 26 when I was studying it, a lot of uh, commentators um, accused Paul of saying that he um, wasn't faithful to, the, uh, to Hosea's context in which he was writing it or that he changed Hosea's meaning. Um, and applied a scripture that was meant for um, Israel to Gentiles. So I was just wondering what um, your thoughts were.
2: Well, it's a good question. I'm going to come to Romans 9. If someone's listening to us at Community Bible Church, we're working through the book of Romans chapter by chapter, verse by verse. But let me just give you the, the, the quick answer. Paul really here is responding to the question. You know, why why does God still blame us? And um, so he's giving now a third explanation here in in the flow of thought here in Romans. And basically he says, listen, God foretold these things in the scripture. Uh, The fact that there would be objects of mercy was spoken of in the Old Testament. Now it's important when you come to the Hosea quote, uh, let me just read this section And he did so in order that he might make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory, even us, whom he also called, not from among Jews only, but also from among Gentiles. As he says also in Hosea, I will call those who are not my people, my people, and her who is not beloved, beloved. And it shall be that in that place, where it was said to them, you are not my people. There they shall be called sons of the living God. And then he's going to go on. He's going to give another quotation from Isaiah and build the same case. Now, the background of the Hosea uh, text, I think, is important. It concerns Hosea's marriage to his adulterous wife, Gomer. And together, if you remember, if you've read or studied the book of Hosea, they had three children and their names, which God chose for them and the prophet gave them. Uh, They symbolize God's judgment on the northern kingdom of Israel. If you remember, the uh, kingdom had split into two portions. There was the northern kingdom. First 120 years, they're united under Saul, David, and Solomon, each for 40 years. So for the first 120 years, they're united. Each king rules exactly 40 years. The next 345 years, the kingdom is divided Um, In the northern section until they're carried away by the Assyrians. And so when you're dealing with Old Testament prophets, you always want to ask, which kingdom are they speaking to? One, are they a pre-exilic prophet? Are they preaching before the exile? When we're talking about the major and minor prophets, there is obviously a number of other prophets in the Bible, like King David is even a prophet, the Bible teaches. Uh, But when we speak of those who served in that office of prophet, Uh, There is a major and the minor prophets, major and minor designated not on the importance of their material, but on the amount of material. And so you always want to ask, did they preach before the exile, before the northern kingdom or the southern kingdom were carried away in judgment, during the exile or after the exile? Well, Hosea is a pre-exilic prophet, and he's preaching to the unfaithfulness of the people of Israel in the northern kingdom, those 10 tribes. So he told them uh, to call their second child a daughter, lo rahuma, which means not loved, because he says, I will no longer show love to the house of Israel. And you can go back and read that in Hosea. He then told them to call their third child, who is a boy, lo ami, which means not my people. And uh, because he says, you're, you're no longer my people, uh, and I'm not your God in terms of practice. God never forsook Israel, but he's talking about in terms of experience, because they had turned to idolatry. Yet then God goes on, if you remember, Hosea, and he promises that he's going to reverse the situation, and uh, as as seen in the rejection of the children's names. And so he says, I will call them my people who are not my people. I will call her my loved one who is not my loved one. And it will happen just as I said. So, Paul's quoting this. Now, in order to understand, I think, Paul's handling of this text, you need to remember that in the New Testament, according to the New Testament, Old Testament prophecies really have a a threefold fulfillment of sorts. The first is immediate and literal in the history of Israel. And of course, this is important. So you see what you will often, what we often call a near and a far fulfillment. And many times a prophet would give a short-range prophecy and a long-range prophecy. And sometimes a prophecy would have a dual meaning. It would have a short-term short term fulfillment and a long-term fulfillment. So when you think of Old Testament prophecies, remember they typically have a threefold fulfillment. The first is immediate, and it's literal, and it concerns the people of Israel. The second intermediate is intermediate and spiritual, and it often deals with Christ and his church. Sometimes it has to do with the Lord Jesus and his people. And a third is, is often ultimate, when God looks all the way down to the end of time, when he consummates the kingdom of God and we go into the eternal state. So you're going to see prophecies in the Bible that hit on those three realms. Uh, a good example would be like the rebuilding of the temple, which may be obvious to most people listening to me. Here, however, uh, this prophecy takes the form of God's promise and mercy to really overturn what seems to be a hopeless situation, to love again those that he said were unloved, and to welcome again his people who he said was not his people. The intermediate and literal application was to Israel in the 8th century. Uh, But Paul uses this. Uh, as also a longer-term fulfillment as done in the Gentiles. They had been separate from Christ. They had been excluded from the household of faith, from the nation of Israel. Uh, They were foreigners to the covenants, as he's going to highlight in these three chapters. But in Christ, Paul will say, look, you who were once far away have been brought close. So you're no longer foreigners, but you're fellow citizens with God's people. And so, Paul is highlighting the fact that there was not only a short-term fulfillment in the 8th century when Hosea preaches, but there's a long-term fulfillment in the church. So, the critics should be silenced, and and one way to really silence them is to see very often how God does this, how God supernaturally will take a prophecy and will have a short-term, but then an obvious unexplainable, except by the supernatural long-term fulfillment. Now, that's the short answer. I will give an hour-long answer when I come to Romans 9, and I will deal with it in much further detail, but I hope that will get you started. Good question.
1: All right, 525-1859, toll-free 877-924-7980, and you can always email us at tbl at net. We have another tithing question. Uh, This caller asks, if a couple are both saved, but the husband decides not to tithe, is the wife, who does not work outside the home, held accountable for her husband's not tithing? And secondly, if you have the same situation, but the wife does, does work outside the home, should she go ahead and tithe on her pay, although the husband does not tithe on his?
2: Well, it is a good question, you know, an issue of we must obey God rather than man. It's like, let me give another illustration. I'll come back to your specific one that's been asked. Sometimes a woman will say to me, well, I'm a Christian now, but my husband forbids me to go to church on Sunday morning. Uh, Am I to submit to his leadership and to obey? And I would say, no. You would say lovingly to your husband, now, husband, I love you. I respect you. I'm going to do my best to be your helpmate, to come alongside to allow you to achieve uh your 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 goals, your your aspirations to fulfill the gifts and abilities that God has granted to you. And um but on Sunday morning, I'm going to be with God's people because God tells me I'm not to forsake my assembling together with the brethren. Now, very often a wise woman can go to an early service. She might amend her schedule when she's dealing with a lost husband. Certainly, when you're married to an unbeliever, I hope not by choice, but by conversion. But sometimes women are married by choice. They fell in love, or vice versa. A man fell in love with a woman who is an unbeliever, and somehow they justified it in their minds, unless they were in pure ignorance, and they didn't know what God said, that a believer should not marry an unbeliever, which I would then assume it was an unbelieving pastor who pursued the uh, the formal a ceremony um, unless they were in gross ignorance and they rationalized and they thought, well, he's going to become a believer or he had what I called a marriage altar conversion. And I always warned, especially young ladies of marriage altar conversions of these guys who say, oh, yes, I'm a Christian now. So now we can get married. I, I fit the bill. You, you want to look for someone who has a real heart and passion for God, someone that you can follow Someone that you're not leading but is able to lead you. And so I would say that to any young single woman who's not yet been married to potter that very carefully and to seek wise counsel and people who know you well so you don't just get stuck with some guy that you should never have married to begin with. But assuming it was either in ignorance or by disobedience, and if it was by disobedience, you should confess that because you want God's blessing on your personal life and to come clean. And and I've seen a lot of men and women on both sides rationalize and say, well, I married this guy thinking he was going to become a Christian and three years later he did. So it was obviously God's will for us to get married. No, it was not obviously God's will because God's will never contradicts God's uh, word. God says clearly, implicitly, by applying 2 Corinthians 6, that you're not to be bound together with an unbeliever. And the most binding of all human relationships is the husband-wife relationship. You're not to marry an unbeliever. And that's taught in both Testaments. You don't do theology by experience. Now, it might have been God's ultimate will for you to marry that pagan, but not his immediate will. He would have said, first, wait until he became a believer, because if you're going to do theology by experience for your two cases that you can give me where the guy was ultimately converted, I can give you a hundred cases where he wasn't. So you don't do theology by experience. You do it by the word of God. Your experience must always be subservient to God's will. So you say to that non-Christian husband, I'm going to go to church on Sunday. Now, again, a wise woman might say, but I'm not going to go to every Bible study I'd like to go to. I might not go to the Wednesday night service. Uh, And that's probably some of the consequences of of being married to an unbeliever. But on the Lord's Day, that's a non-negotiable. So it is with the tithe when it comes to what God has put in your hand. And so if your husband says to you, listen, I'm not going to tithe to the local church. You, You can't make him. You submit to his authority. But if he says, here, honey, here's $20. This is just spending money for you then you give an increase. You give off the increase. You give $2 to the work of the Lord. Or your parents send you a $50 check for your birthday. Or a friend uh, blesses you with some money. Then you tithe off of what God puts in your hand. Again, however that happens. uh, Let's say you're married and you don't have children. And you're working outside the home and you're making money. Tithe off of that. Uh, again, you must obey God rather than men. So what God puts in your hand, you tithe off of, because you must obey God rather than men. Um, and that's where I would encourage you to start. And again, in this course on biblical finance, uh, how to financial fitness God's way, I think, is the most recent title. I've taught it about 10 times. The last time I taught it, I taught it with my son after, just after graduating graduated from Harvard Business School, and he did the uh, investing-slash-budgeting side of it. Um, uh, that course is available on DVD, and there's a 130-page notebook that goes through it. There's other stuff out there, like Dave Ramsey, but Dave Ramsey you know, has about four verses in his whole book, at least one book I've read. It's not really biblically-based, and while I would say most of his principles are rooted in Scripture, the courses and teachings that he gives are not biblically-based, and that makes it marketable, uh, to a non-Christian audience, but it doesn't make it attainable to a believer. Because unless you have some deep-rooted convictions that are grounded in the Word of God through a renewed mind that came through a personal study of Scripture, then long-term, you're not going to apply the stewardship, the saving, the debt, the investing, and the giving principles that are taught in the Word of God.
1: Five two five one eight five nine toll-free, 877 877- 924-7980, and you can email us uh, at tbl, at as has Neil from San Antonio, Texas. He writes, in Exodus, the Lord mandates that the Passover lamb must be roasted over fire. This would seem to symbolize punishment in the fire of hell. It seems to symbolize that people must die and then be subject to the fire of hell to pay for their sins. Jesus is the Passover lamb, but my understanding is that he did not suffer in the fire of hell after being sacrificed. This is where the analogy seems to fall apart. After the Passover lamb was burned by fire, then it was eaten, and we're instructed to symbolically eat the flesh of Jesus in the Lord's Supper. Since the eating of the flesh is symbolic, then I suppose the flames are symbolic. Um, We don't really eat the flesh of Jesus, and Jesus didn't actually suffer in hell, but did pay the price we would pay by um, suffering in hell. Uh, Jesus really did shed his blood and die for our sins, and putting our faith in his sacrifice spares us from death and hell. Was the eating of the Passover lamb an Old Testament version of the Lord's Supper? People in the Old Testament looked ahead to Jesus' sacrifice, and in the New Testament we remember Jesus' sacrifice. The bread of the Lord's Supper is also burned by fire. I haven't heard anyone explain this before. Is the above explanation valid?
2: Well, again, when you interpret Old Testament types or illustrations that are fulfilled in Jesus Christ, you want to be careful not to go too far with them uh, to make sure that indeed uh, you don't spiritualize the text and read into the text. That becomes eisegesis. But again, you know, the Old Testament scriptures speak of him. So there is symbolism, of course, in each of the feasts that God instituted for Israel. There's a picture typically of his first or his second comings or both. And you don't want to miss those pictures. So Paul obviously sees in the Passover lamb, uh, the Lord Jesus. He will say to the Corinthian church, Christ, our Passover has been sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us, you know, enjoy the feast and so celebrate the feast. And so... There is clearly a picture in the Passover lamb. When they ate it, they weren't to break the bones. Uh, when Jesus hung on the cross, not a single bone would be broken in his body, which was remarkable because remember, again, he is crucified. And when they come to the thieves, they were very much alive. And because the Jewish people wanted to get the bodies off the cross before the Sabbath began, they broke the legs of the thieves, because that would have induced suffocation where they could no longer balance themselves on the cross to bring in oxygen into their lungs, and they would have suffocated within a minute or so. When they came to the Lord Jesus, he was already dead, because he commanded his spirit to the Father. Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. And that, of course, is when true death takes place when the spirit leaves the body. Sometimes people will say, well, I died on the operating table. You came back to life. You didn't die on the operating table. It's appointed for a man to die once. And after this comes the judgment. Now your heart and lungs may have stopped on the operating table, but you didn't experience death in the fullest sense. James will say, for just as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead. It's so when the spirit leaves the body and it doesn't do, that, that doesn't take place until after the heart and lungs are, are gone that literal death takes place. Oh, but I had this beautiful, magnificent light that I saw. I've had people tell me, I, you know, I, I died on the operating table and I, I had this magnificent light and I was in the presence of God and God told me, my child, everything is fine. And then, then I'll ask them the diagnostic questions. Well, why should God let you in heaven? Because I saw this light. Well, what about Christ's death? I don't know anything about his death, but I saw this light. Well, I don't know what you saw, but it wasn't from God. It was probably just oxygen deprivation. But it was not um, a vision from God, because there's only one way to the Father, and that's through the Son, because there is salvation in no one else. So you die just once, period. And so Jesus commanded his spirit into the Father's hand. And so when they came to him, it was obvious he was dead, And to just be absolutely positive, they took a spear and ran it through his side and blood and water flew out, flowed down his side, which is a sure sign of death. He was dead. So they didn't have to break his bones. So again, you see in the Passover lamb, Christ, the Passover lamb was expected over the course of several days. They brought the Passover lambs in on the Sunday before Sabbath, Jesus, not by accident, Uh, comes on Palm Sunday, and he presents himself as Israel's king. He's coming as the Passover lamb through the very gate that the Passover lambs would come through. And then they would inspect those lambs very, very carefully. They couldn't have any defect. They couldn't have any uh, fur defect, any scabs, any any problems with their eyes or hoofs or anything. They had to be considered perfectly healthy. Why? Because they're representing the sinlessness of Christ. And even so, the Lord Jesus, most of what we read in the Gospels is dedicated to the last week of his life. As the religious leaders, the Herodians, the Sadducees, the Ph- Pharisees, and even the civil officials carefully examine his life, and repeatedly the testimony is, I don't find any guilt in him. They, they couldn't prove any sin in him. It was all manufactured and fabricated, and even their deceit is recorded in Scripture. And again, it's not by accident. Now, the, the burning, um, I think, personally, that's not a representation of the fire of hell. You are right. It is true that the Lord Jesus on the cross finished the payment. When the, when the old confessions of faith say Christ was dead— buried, descended into hell, and on the third day was raised from the dead. The descent into hell was not to go into some fiery place in which to pay for sin. He said to tell us die on the cross, but there is a segment of hell that he did descend into. Peter identifies it as Tartarus. Tatarus Tatarus, excuse me. I, I went to, I got in from Boston last night at one AM so I'm a little groggy today. Heart arrest. Uh, Yes. And um, in either case, um, there he went and preached to a certain class of angelic beings. He wasn't paying for sin. He finished it on the cross. But God did specify that when Jews partook in a sacrifice, it was either to be roasted or boiled. They didn't eat bloody meat. And there was a reason for it because God was highlighting in the mind of a Jew the sacredness of blood. The life is in the blood. Even under the new covenant restrictions in Acts 15, God is not, you know, prohibiting, say, eating a, a juicy steak, but he did prohibit eating raw blood. So they roasted or they boiled the meal, and they did unlike what the Gentiles did, where they drank or ate blood, because their as a sacredness in blood, the life is in the blood, and God wanted to highlight the principle all the way through the Old Testament sacrificial system that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness for sin. Now, remember, they are celebrating Passover there in the upper room, but Jesus puts a new twist on this last Passover, and he makes it very clear that there's something new that's being instituted. And while they were eating, Jesus took some bread and After a blessing, he broke it and gave it to the disciples, said, take, eat, this is my body. He was not uh, violating the Old Testament law, saying this is my literal flesh. Uh, It's not transubstantiated, as our Roman Catholic friends teach. They argue for the ubiquitous presence of Christ, that it looks like bread, tastes like bread, but miraculously is literally transformed into the body of Christ and the juice into the blood of Christ. I don't think so. Because, again, that would be a violation of what God says in the Old Testament not to do, not to drink blood. It would be a violation of what God said in in the Old Testament against cannibalism, and it would be a violation of what God told the Gentiles in Acts 15. So, again, it's symbolic. Take it. Eat. This is my body. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he said, drink from it all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant. Of what covenant? Of the new covenant. The new covenant that Jeremiah and Ezekiel the prophet spoke of, which is poured out for many for forgiveness of sins. So the new covenant was enacted when Jesus died on the cross. And that's what we're really celebrating. Uh, we're, we're It's not a memorial service in the sense that we're remembering someone who's dead, in fact, we're, we're remembering someone who is very much alive for as often as you eat this cup, I mean, eat this bread and drink this cup, you do so until you're, you're proclaiming his death until he comes again, Paul argues in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. So we're worshiping a living, reigning, sovereign Lord who is going to return again. Let's go to the next question.
1: Indeed. Um, our next caller writes, Excuse me, I've been reading through the Gospels and the book of Acts lately, and I've been wondering why the church today seems much more intellectual than the early church, but powerless. I noticed that God stood behind those disciples when they went forth preaching the gospel. Why don't we see that measure of miraculous today? In Matthew 1714 to 21, Jesus rebukes his disciples for not having the faith to cast out a demon from a boy. Do you believe Jesus would rebuke us today for not operating in this kind of faith? When Jesus says in John fourteen twelve "The works I do shall you do also, does He mean just that?
2: Well, let me just first respond to um, your question that you think the church today is more intellectual and less powerless. Number one, I think the early church was more intellectual than the modern day church. When you see these men who supposedly had not been to any of the approved schools. Uh, They were uneducated people, as the religious leaders said of the apostles, yet they were demonstrating having been with Christ. Uh, They knew the scriptures. They are very much unlike the modern evangelical church. I would say the average evangelical is ignorant of the scriptures. Uh, They go to churches where they have a lot of feel-good sermons, where the Bible is not really opened up and taught. There's not a and when it is, it's often a, a, just a little snippet, a devotional thought, rather than the very text of Scripture. That is unlike what you see in the Old Testament. It's unlike what you see in the New Testament. They would listen to the Word of God on, for, on hour, for hours on edge. Uh, in the early America, you know, the average sermon in early America was two and a half hours long. Uh, No, I would say the 21st century evangelical church is the ignorant church, and with that ignorance comes really a loss of power. Now, you see uh, power only in terms of the miraculous, and again, what you might want to do, and I think you would find this to be helpful, would be to go to my course on spiritual gifts and listen, if nothing else, to section number six, where we deal with the signs and wonder gifts of the New Testament. Again, I've said it many times, signs and wonders have never been normative throughout biblical history. Uh, No one did any signs and wonders until the day of Moses. Uh, Joshua uh, did it for a short time as they went into the promised land, and then he died and they dried up. But Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, none of those guys ever did a, a miracle. Not until the time of Moses that miracles come into play. Hundreds of years go by. No one does them until Elijah and Elisha. Hundreds of years go by. No one does them until Christ and the apostles. And God only knows how much time will transpire until they happen again through at least two witnesses during the time of the Great Tribulation. So, one, biblical miracles have never been normative throughout biblical history, only at the great turning points when God is either bringing new revelation or calling people to repentance. So, one, the model that I think you try to create as normative for today, I think, is a, is a, is a twisted model, and it's an, an accurate model. If you really want to study that with an open mind, then I would encourage you to, again, listen to Section 6 on my Spiritual Gifts course, because I go into this in tremendous detail. But let me just say, parenthetically, when Jesus spoke of greater works that they would do, think about that. Just think about that one statement for just a second. What greater works did the apostles do that were greater than Christ? I mean, did they raise people from the dead? Well, yeah, Peter and Paul did. Um, But did they do something greater than that? Well, no. Well, what greater works did they do? that Jesus didn't do. I mean, Jesus, you know, unstopped deaf ears and opened blind eyes and restored lame limbs and, and made uh, dead people come back to life. What, what greater things did they do than that? Well, the greater works they did, I think, were works of conversion. Peter, in one sermon, saw more people come to faith in Jesus Christ than the Lord had seen in his whole three-year public ministry. And God, the Holy Spirit's promise of coming in the new covenant was fulfilled. And so God, the Holy Spirit was working in a new and powerful way in bringing people. There is no greater miracle than the miracle of conversion, the miracle of a changed life, the miracle of a soul being transformed from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's beloved son. So God can still do miracles today. But there are certain signs and wonders that were used to authenticate men to be apostles or representing the apostles as apostolic delegates. Again, this is a short answer, but there's an hour long—actually, I think I spent two hours on this. Um, there's two one-hour messages along with— a. 10 or 12 page handout that accompanies it that I think would be worth your reading and your study. Great question. Let's go to the next.
1: All right. I think we've got time for this one. Um, I was wondering about the message we are to communicate when we evangelize the lost. Are we to preach the kingdom message as in the Messiah's coming kingdom or just the message to repent and believe the gospel? Or should this all be wrapped in the same evangelistic message?
2: Well, let me just say first, the kingdom of God and kingdom of heaven are equivalent terms in the Bible. Uh, they're used interchangeably, and um, there there's many verses where you can see within within a phrase where Jesus speaks of the kingdom of God, and the next moment he calls it the kingdom of heaven. So, one, those are equivalent terms. Some people try to then make a different term out of the, the gospel of the kingdom. Listen, the gospel of the kingdom, there's only really one gospel, and that is the death, burial, and resurrection. Jesus was speaking about entrance into the spiritual kingdom, that you must be born again. Not to be confused with the Davidic kingdom, when the Lord Jesus shall return from heaven and literally physically uh, keep the promises that he made to Israel where he will rule and reign for a thousand years upon the earth. Uh, that's going to happen. That will happen. But there's only one gospel. The gospel of the kingdom is how do you get into the kingdom of heaven, into the kingdom of God? And Paul said, I delivered to you as a first importance the gospel, that Christ died, was buried, and was raised from the dead. There's only one gospel, the articular use of the term gospel. The word gospel, without the article, without the pointing word, as we learned in grammar school, the word the in front of it, just means good news. But when we are talking about the gospel, We're talking about the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. So if someone asks you what the gospel is, don't say Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Say it's the death, burial, and the resurrection. You say, why are you making such a point of this? Well, Paul said, for I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. It's important because it's the only way God can save you. He's not going to save you by your works, by your human effort, by having a miracle done to you, by having a miracle done through you. He's going to save you by the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ plus nothing else. We're out of time. Thanks for being with us today. God bless you. Hope you have a good day.